Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from Loop, and each week I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. This week, I'm speaking with Clive Shepard, who as well as heading up corporate training functions, has been a pioneer in the development and advancement of learning technologies. But before we start, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do take the time to give us a rating on your podcast app of choice. It'll help others to find us. Thank you. Now let's get into it. Clive, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Thank you very much. Now, you've been in L&D since the 1970s, firstly in-house with American Express, before moving into the e-learning business. And you're very much recognised as pioneer in technology-enabled learning. Now, in my mind, L&D has had a strange relationship with technology over the decades. Where are we with it now? Well, it's funny you should say a strange relationship. I mean, it was... Um, a very resistant relationship for a very long time Mm -hmm. and uh, it it was uh, very difficult to get uh, the average L&D person to engage with technology at all. I think we're past that stage in the Mm -hmm. sense that um, pretty well every organisation that you encounter has engaged with technology for L&D. But I don't think that uh, we're anywhere near saying that we're at, at that point where um, technology is really accepted. And as I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll just come today when we talk about this in a bit more detail, there are some big problems still to be overcome. Mm. For me, part of the problem is that we've used technology to scale what we do, our products and our offering, often to the detriment of the end user. Would that be fair? Yeah, well, I think that the one thing that organisations have taken on board is the scalability, as you say, Mm. of e-learning, the fact that you can reach a big audience very quickly and with very little um, actual engagement with them. In other words, it it can be quite a hands-off experience, which is, you know, quite attractive uh, in some situations. The problem is that you know, learning is not something that lends itself very well to being completely hands-off. It's a very human experience. Mm. So um, you can go too far with that and and end up with something that somehow just doesn't engage you on a human level. Mm. Uh, And again, that's worth investigating further. But I think the the scalability issue uh, has been taken on board. Um, Probably that has caused problems as well. So yes, it means that if you do need to train 200,000 people to uh, to be volunteers for the 2012 Olympics or whatever it was they had to do, that's probably the only way you're going to solve that problem. And in situations like that, it's fantastic. Mm. Or if you're running a MOOC and you do want to um, train people very cheaply at, at, at a very low cost. But the, 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 the problem is, I think, that for most organisations, they say, what's the thing that we least like getting our hands on and having to do? And they'd say compliance training mm. and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we know we've got to do it, but we hate doing it. Could we get the technology to do it? Then we don't have to do yeah. it. So we don't get all the flack. And um, so that's the sort of thing which a lot of not just content, but platforms are pretty well put in place, huge platforms. For, for not much more than for compliance purposes. Mm. And, uh, you know, not that compliance training isn't necessary, because it obviously is uh, to be compliant. But the problem is that if you just treat it like, um, you know, a thing, we've, we've got rid of it onto technology and we're going to do the sort of minimum possible, you end up with uh, an unpalatable product. And and I think that you could say that um, the uh 
e-learning, and that requires some definition anyway, mm. but, but technology-based training has got itself into a sort of compliance ghetto, you could mm. say. Um, and because compliance training is unpopular, it can make technology-based learning unpopular. Um, so in some ways, it's worked against e-learning. Yeah. I think that uh, what what you're tapping into there is this sullying of the phrase, isn't it? And it's you know it's it's a e-learning is something that that we've adopted, kind of to translate what you're saying to take the pain away from ourselves. It's almost transplant the pain onto the end user. Um, but the the phrase itself does seem to be going through well to be challenged a little bit and almost evolving because L and D. Uh, and corporate learning are, are using technology in order to um, uh, affect performance, to build organisational capability, whilst also addressing this e-learning thing, which hasn't got a good reputation and perhaps hasn't been as effective as it could be in addressing performance and capability. Would that be fair? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a big irony here, because if you were looking at technology-based learning from the perspective that I was and colleagues were back in the late 70s, early 80s, and it, it was seen in such a, a positive light as mm. something that would be really liberating and provide people with access to education training that they may not otherwise be able to, to get or to get as effectively, um, that in a way that vision has come true. Um, and that if we look more broadly at how people learn using technology, the world has been transformed as a result of it, mm. particularly if you broaden the concept of learning to generally being powered by knowledge as well. Mm. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't need me to say that the world is just a completely different place because of access to knowledge. And, you know, um, even if it is things that we just take for granted, like Wikipedia or YouTube and things mm. like this, are learning resources beyond our wildest dreams 30, 40 years ago. So if you, um, if you look at has uh, technology enabled learning on a mass scale in the way that we envisaged, yes, except at work. Yeah. Um, well, there are obviously great exceptions and uh, people do some fantastic stuff with technology at work. And, um, you know, there are, you know, platforms like your, your own, which do encourage a much more contemporary approach, which is much more like the experience that we get outside mm. work. So if you were to talk to, you know, just a, an ordinary employee or member of the public and ask them about learning using your various devices, they would just absolutely take it for granted and there would be no resistance whatsoever because it's what you do every day all the time. Yeah. Um, but if you use the term e-learning and you talk about that corporate stuff that's highly highly packaged instruction, um then you know you're 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 going to meet a completely different reaction, and that that's just not acceptable. We we it, it, um, L has just not kept up with the world, yeah. and is not delivering the sort of experience that people are used to. It's not that the experience people are used to outside work is complicated, because if we look at um, uh, like Wikipedia, you could say, well, actually, that's quite a a, a dry resource to 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 engage with there's nothing but it's just mainly text with a few graphics if you talk about um youtube because it's it, it's video or podcasts like this or all the other ways that people do use uh, technology to learn they're not complicated mm. things 
Um, I mean, there are there are complicated ways of learning through simulations and games and things, but most people's experience is incredibly simple. Um, but the effort, if you think about YouTube, what's successful on YouTube is good communication. Mm. People don't think about it as technology; they think about it about think about the person on the other side of the camera who's communicating with them. And when they're listening to this podcast, they're not thinking about, "Oh, this is a piece of technology." I mean. It's just like radio. Mm. It's basically it's a conversation which I'm listening in to on the hope, hope that there's be something there which which gives me some inspiration. So in a way, um, technology has been fantastically successful. And where people are um, where people are um, getting benefits from that at work, it's because they're using their platforms and the content and the other experiences that they create to just to do something simple which is engaging as you know in, in a in, as a sort of human learning experience and uh, not getting caught up in um, i think um, there's two dangers one is getting caught up in trying to be too clever with technology because you mm. mainly don't need to but the other is i think that the whole world of instructional design and um you know, which not, I think it's not the fault of the world of instructional design because it was, you know, it evolved with very good rational, um, um, you know, for good rational reasons. It actually hugely bogs down the process as well mm. and doesn't help us at all because I don't think people are able to see through the instructional design to create, you know, to come back to that basic thing which somebody speaking in front of a group has to do or somebody on a video or a podcast has to do, which is engage and to challenge and to interact with uh, in ways that are, uh, you know, essentially human. Mm. And I think that the intention plays a, a huge part in this as well, because uh, we're recording this podcast, number one, because I thought this would be interesting. But my thoughts are here that that there are higher level conversations that need to occur in learning and development in order to progress the profession. But I'm not accountable for anybody's performance, mm-hmm. unlike L&D. But where I, I wonder where um, whether instructional design has uh, perhaps not advanced to the to what we've been discussing here with, with other um, web uh, applications is that Perhaps what we've done with compliance is we've said to people, we need you to know this and therefore we need you to do things this way. And it's all been aimed towards that. And then we've tried the same with performance enhancement. Mm. I need you to do this or I need you to know this. Mm. Whereas the web is far more pull on the way that, that Google's algorithm yeah. is set up, as well as YouTube yeah. um, and, and a lot of uh, applications consumer applications as well is we we recognize where you are you've input you've told us and now we're going to try to guide you towards other stuff that might be helpful rather than the content perspective which is we need you to know this well yeah this is this is this this is sort of at the hub of the problem really i think that you know it's you can go too far one way or the other Mm. you can say that Everything needs to be pulled. Everything is essentially, you know, um, I take it if I want it. And, Mm. you know, I explore what I want to explore, which is fine. But you only do that from a base. In other words, um, that doesn't solve the problem of people coming into a new career or or, uh, a new organization where they absolutely must know how to do certain things. Mm. 
And um, this isn't a question of free form exploration. This is the basic requirements of your job. You yeah. know, and the things that we do expect our airline pilots and nurses and, and doctors and electricians and everybody else to, you know, they must know these things. They must be able to do them and they must be able to do them in conformance with the law and regulations and science and all these things. Mm. So the concept that some things don't have to be pushed, I think, it, you know, it defies common sense. But on the other hand, we've, you know, we've been pushing so hard for the other, mm. which is let's make a free form exploration um, and make it all very liberal and, and, and uh, learner centred. Um, uh, almost demonising the idea that you do have to do instruction, but you do have mm. to do instruction. And um, usually that's the th one thing the organisation must do, uh, not just to comply, but just to have people who can do things like go around and fix telephone lines mm. and uh, everything else that has to be done in the real world and do it in a way that's safe and do it in a way that is um, efficient and all these things. So instruction is necessary, and that's why we have instructional design. Um, instruction is necessary when somebody must know how to learn, uh, know something or they must know how to do something. But several things have changed. One is that a um, lot of the time you don't need to know things anymore because you can look them up very easily. So mm -hmm. um, the actual stuff you must know is much more limited because people can find information within a few seconds mm -hmm. uh, if they've got good, you know, um, good resources at their disposal. So actually the need for instruction has diminished in some ways. But we've use uh, instructional techniques which have to be fairly rigorous by you know in order to make sure that someone's reached that particular level for things that it's completely inappropriate for which i think is the point you are making that you, you you take across that compliance attitude into stuff which is behavioral or mm. you try to in, influence people's attitudes and inspire them to do certain things. And the absolutely worst thing you can do <laughs> is tell people how to think and what to do. Yeah. Because they'll, you know, basically they'll say no. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it was uh, a Winston Churchill quote or a quote attributed to Winston Churchill. He said, uh, I love to learn, but I don't like being taught. And I wonder whether that's a little bit <laughs> within well, all of us. I think that's, that, that's very fair. And, um, you know, but even he would, uh, would agree that it was probably quite useful that he did learn some of the yeah. things he, he learned and it, because he was taught them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is actually a fairly small part of someone's capability that they have to be taught. Mm. But I think most of us would say over the years that actually I'm quite I'm glad I did learn my times table or how to spell or whatever it is I did uh, because, you know, it's a foundation and mm. it was a bit unpleasant having to learn it and it took a lot of repetition and a lot of practice and rehearsal. It's the same if somebody's going to learn how to play the piano. You might say, well, fine, let's just give them free exploration on the piano and, and uh, you know, they might turn out to be a a jazz genius or a Stevie Wonder, you know, mm. because he's playing, he's having to do it by feel. It can work, but almost anybody who is a musician would say, well, actually, the grunt work that I did at the beginning <laughs> was actually really helpful. Yeah. And the free exploration is something you can build upon a sound yeah. base. Um, I want to take a couple of steps back to, to something that you were talking about just a moment ago, um, because the promise of e-learning back in the day was that it was going to replace classroom training. And I think we've been left with a classroom versus tech situation mm. ever since with people hunkering down into their preference, which isn't healthy or helpful, is it? No. Well, I think it's, it, 
you know, when you think about it, it is ridiculous to have a preference. You can't say to people, do you prefer to learn by technology or to learn by a classroom or to learn by one-to-one, you know, with a coach or an instructor because it's entirely context-driven. Mm. So if, if you say to somebody, um, you, you know, how would you like to learn to play golf? They'll probably say with a one-to-one, you know, with, a, with an instructor. You know, if you if you ask them perhaps how you know I want to explore history of art, um, and I don't have you know I, I, I you know I'm not in a situation where I can walk next door into a university to do it. Then they probably say I'd quite like to do that by watching videos and documentaries and study. You know, they'd like to do that perhaps on their own. And in other cases, if they they might say, well, like you know, I want to um, you know explore different. Um, uh, start your sort of uh, you know approaches to leadership and things. Mm. They probably say, "Well, I'd prefer to be with a group because I want to you know this is not black or white. There's no such thing as a, as a right way. I want to see what other people think, and they mm. want to be in that in that group environment." Now, because technology is not about learning on your own anyway. I mean, mm. it, it that's how it's seen often in a corporate context. But of course, as we know, you know the you can learn in groups. Uh, or learn one-to-one online as well. So you can mm. you can do your one-to-one coaching online. You can you can learn in a group in a virtual classroom, or you can um, learn asynchronously in a group with forums and you know social media. So in a way, any one of the main sort of what I would call the social contexts for learning: are you on your own? Are you one-to-one? Are you in a group or in a wider community? All of those can be accomplished online mm. as well as face-to-face. So, but even then, when you come down to face to face or not, um, you know, in other words, it should a virtual classroom be used here or or a physical classroom? There are still good reasons for using a physical classroom in certain cases. Yeah. But uh, and I think it's emotionally more powerful um, to be face to face with somebody. Um, but on a routine basis, it's not necessary. And the, and the analogy I use is that if you if you ask people. You know, if you think about the music you listen to, how much of it's listened to live, you know, in a club or a big concert hall or wherever it is that you, you go, as opposed to on headphones or, you know, on speakers. Most people say it's about 5% of, you know, or even 2% is live, you know, perhaps more when you're younger and less mm. when you get older. And you say, well, how, what about the sport that you watch if you're interested in sport? How much of that is live? For most people, it's it's not very convenient to, to go to live sport, um, so they watch it on the telly or they watch it on their phones. Well, but if you ask them how important in your sort of looking back in your life were those occasions where you went to that fantastic theatrical thing or music thing or um, uh, you know sport event, people say it's fantastically important. You know, these were the highlights of my life, mm. but. 95% of the time, I'm perfectly happy doing that, you know, um, using technology. And I think that's where we are, again, with most learning. Most learning is perfectly comfortably managed in an um, online environment. But don't, don't, that doesn't mean you don't take advantage of, mm. the, of face-to-face where it's really necessary. Yeah, and I wonder whether the the even that conversation is is largely a distraction, one that's born from within learning and development with our preferred methods of delivery or interacting with uh, cohorts. And when we take our bias or even 
that thought process to our potential clients and ask them how they how they prefer to learn that even then is a huge distraction because when it comes down to it when people are facing unfamiliar situations either because they're new to an organization or to a role as they look to assimilate do the right things and get results The important things for them are that they learn how to do the right things in order to get the results. Now, what we then do is talk about how we might isolate specific elements that we that we categorize into our core topics that we understand your communication skills, your leadership. Um, even even if it's around um, people starting uh, within an organization, it's your induction. So we categorize it for them. And then we deliver that in a way that makes sense to yeah. us, in a way that is scalable for us. Yeah. So when we then ask them whether they like it or what they prefer, yeah. we're not even getting to the real question, which is what do you actually need in order mm-hmm. to perform? Because I'm mm-hmm. sure that during your time, you've met really smart people yeah. who in most situations would thrive, but butt up against some cultural nuance within an organization and some fail. And learning and development are there saying, but you know, we've got we're running our programs and we're running these in a way that people yeah. prefer. And yeah. real life yeah. isn't actually addressed by the L and D offering. No, I think I think I think um, that's that, you know you've got some good insights there. I think the as you say the deconstruction that's done within L and D and always has been done you know, to take a topic like assertiveness or something and mm. run a program on it. Uh, of course, real life isn't deconstructed like that and, it, you know, is a sort of sort of highly complex interweaving of all sorts of different situations all happening at once. It, 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 it does become very abstract. It, it can be quite enjoyable to learn these things, but mm. very hard to apply them because it's very rarely properly enforced, reinforced anyway. But I think you've hit upon another really big problem which is that if you don't engage with your target audience um, early enough and, uh, you know, uh, with enough um, enthusiasm and and hard work, you'll, you know, you will end up making products that you, that suit you or Mm. or you think, or suit management or you think will suit the learner, but aren't actually what they want. And so, so the idea of that, um, you know, what you need to do to, to be a good L&D person is to go and see your sort of internal client, find out what the problem is and, you know, work out what the, the where the gap is from the business's point of view and then try and fill that gap is only half the story because mm. you've actually got two customers. You've got the, the customer, which is the, the business, and you've got the customer, which is the learner. And the learner actually is, um, I'm not going to say that the learner knows what's good for them mm. because... Um, there's, there's a huge amount of research to show that actually, given um, preference, given the, the choice, people actually make bizarre and wholly ineffective um, choices as to how to learn. <laughs> you know, like cramming and mm. all that sort of stuff. Um, they because they don't necessarily have a particularly good um, understanding or awareness of of, of the learning process. Mm. That'd be better if they did, and they could, and that could be addressed in itself. But on the other hand, they they can be in, incredibly uh, helpful to you in gaining insights into their lives. So, you know, the idea of sitting down, if not with every individual learner, but with the focus groups or with it, or with what, or perhaps occasionally doing surveys or or one to ones, but um, something like that, and asking the question, you know, what are the barriers that you're experiencing to doing the best job you can. Mm. 
um, they will come up with things that were uh, are probably things that you were not aware of. And if you ask them what would overcome those barriers, again, you'll be absolutely amazed. Yeah. And, and they very rarely say, I need an assertiveness course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, often it's the simplest possible things, like I just need um, somebody to come over and show me how to do something, or somebody makes a video to show me how to do something, or, um, or uh, you know, I need a checklist or something yeah. like that. Um, or just point me to the right search term to use in on, on our internet, so I can find the right find the right um, document. Mm. S- simplest possible things are often what people really need, and um, they're not necessarily learning things. If we're going to be strict about it, mm. they are performance enhancing. Th- excuse me, they are performance enhancing things. Um, but often just information yeah. or uh, the simplest levels of support. Um, and uh, so often we over-engineer solutions because we have a, a, an idea about what people want. And this, this is very, very true in technology. And it's, it's a very common um, uh, mistake among software engineers to over-engineer products because they believe that what people want are features. Mm. Um, you know, they, they want a um, graphic editing program which is has got thousands and thousands of features, and the more features it has, the more likely they are to buy it. But actually, that might be true for a professional graphic designer, but that's not normally your major audience. What your normal person wants to do is to you know crop a few things, filter a few things. And chain, you know, save something and send it to somebody, and simple things like that. So the worst thing they can have is a thousand features staring them in the face. Yeah, it's a bit like saying, "Well, what's the ideal um, hi-fi system?" It has one knob mm. called volume. You yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, that's actually what people want in their lives. They want a, a, a one-knob system. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we give them incredibly elaborate stuff. You know, where. I always think if 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 a, if a technology learning resource has instructions on how to use it, then you know you've over-engineered it. Yeah, I'm completely with you there, uh, and which leads me on nicely to my next question because I want to explore again uh, L and D's ongoing relationship with technology, because I think that it hasn't really been helped um, because we continue to see it as a mechanism to deliver learning or content, which has led L and D, I believe to not value digital skills and approaches beyond simple delivery models. In your opinion, what are the skills L&D should be developing to capitalise on the potential of digital? Well, so a lot of the skills are not necessarily digital skills. Oh. I'll come to those in a minute. A lot of what uh, we were talking about just earlier was good consulting skills. Yeah. So it means that you, you do consult properly with the business and really understand what the problem is. And... Um, and be, you're able to, to identify when something really is a learning problem as opposed to a performance sport problem or something which is nothing to do with human performance at all. It's actually uh, uh, some sort of systems problem in the organisation mm. or a, I don't, you know, some, a process which is way beyond your control. Um, but the, then the second skill is that, uh, that consulting skill of being able to engage with your audience. So it's client-centred, mm. customer-centred human-centered design, <laughs> all the different words for it, which um, is almost not done at all in organizations. Uh, I, I've asked 100 times and 99 times out of 100 people say, 
we get we, we really understand why that sounds really important but no we don't do it mm-hmm. we never ask learners what what they want or what they you know what they need or how they'd like to learn and things like that um so those skills are nothing to do with technology they should apply to anything that you design and then it's knowing once you do understand those two sets of needs from the, from the top down and the bottom up um being able to design experiences which are um engaging and accessible and relevant and uh you, you know all, all very human things which um will meet those two needs that were expressed top down bottom up mm. um so sometimes those solutions uh, will have some non-tech elements mm-hmm. or the tech will be very trivial um normally there will be a, a, te- a tech element or sometimes it will be entirely a tech a tech solution but it's probably a number of different types of things um, so if you like the technology is really just the route to market if you like it's the it's the medium but the medium is not usually you don't solve problems by media you solve you, you make things efficient using media scalable and accessible and flexible and things but you make things things work because of the methods that you use within those media. So it makes a big difference whether you choose whether to create a, a PDF or to make a video or a podcast or to uh, a simulation or a forum discussion or a virtual classroom or uh, and how or, or probably a combination of those mm. in, in some in some interesting way. So that what I would have called blended learning design, but I mean, really, it's just design. Yeah. Um, uh, d- design is, is in the context of all the choices we have with technology. You don't have to understand the, the, how it works mm. any more than you need to understand how TV works to you, you operate TV. Um, so being able to design with all those technology options available is rather just doing what's always been done is um, a very significant skill now when we come to the technology itself you could pretty well say that the generation coming through now is has got enough technology knowledge to be able to do all the things they need to do Mm -hmm. and the sort of things like we're doing today being able to record some audio or make a video or take a photograph or do a simple diagram or uh, you know, um, operate a platform in, in in whatever way. Most people can do that. Now. Yeah. So, in, in a way, that problem is going. That problem is going away. But of course, a lot of people in L and D are in mid career. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of that's because people don't come to L and D from straight from college. Right? They come to L and D because they've been in some specialist role and they're moved into L and D. So a lot of people are later in their careers, and um, it seems that L&D, and you could say HR generally, has attracted a lot of people who uh, would quite happily do without technology. <laughs> um, because they, it's a very, it seems like a very human mm. um, profession to be in, you know, helping people to fulfil their potential and all those things. And which is absolutely a great motive to have. But you can't, you know, fulfil those ambitions without technology mm. so just like uh you know you might say i want to be, be a doctor because i really want to help people and cure illnesses and you know make the world better but you can't do that without technology because you would be a hopeless doctor yeah 
you know, you wouldn't know enough about the science, you wouldn't know enough about technology, you would be, um, you know, you'd be, op you know, it would be, a, you, you'd be in a different era. So it, it, there's no such thing as a technophobic professional. Mm -hmm. If you're technophobic, you're not a professional. Mm. Um, that sounds harsh, but it's, it's absolutely true. You have no place in L&D if, if you're technophobic. So you either you have two choices: you either get out or you get over this technophobia, yeah. because that the, so much of the rest of your life is going to be enhanced through technology, not just at work, but not that if you don't, you know, don't keep putting it off. You really do have to engage with it, not with how it works, mm. <laughs> but what it can do. And I think that um, you know we can't just write off a whole generation of people on the basis that. Um, you know, you're not. This is for young people to do, uh, because um, most of it is nothing to do with technology. Yeah. Most of it is to do with learning. I think you've uh, you've you've hit on some uh, some really important points there. The the big ones for me are that we are we are using technology in order to address very human problems, ideally in a very human way. This is about the people. Mm. Going back to to. To what you were saying at the beginning of that response there it's about solving real problems mm. these are these are real problems that people are facing mm. now the human-centered element is you're working with them or and you certainly at the very least you're standing in their shoes or or seeing through their eyes the actual problem that they are facing and then you are designing experiences that help them to address those specific problems and then you will use technology in order to and you know just just thinking off the top of my head here um to get gather together local expertise, things that have actually worked in the context that those people are operating in, in order to share information, know-how and insights that help them to move the needle in their way. It starts and ends with the people that you're trying to influence rather than perhaps a more traditional approach. Um, not less human because we've already, con already always considered, sorry, being in a room with people or preparing some content for them as as people helping people. But in this way, we're learning very much about how digital is supporting and enhancing our everyday life and what soft, software engineers are teaching us all the time, that if you can solve real problems for people, you don't just help them, you can disrupt entire industries mm. along the way as, yeah. you, as you remain laser focused on helping people do what they're trying to do, but better. Yeah, well, sometimes disruption is a helpful thing yeah. and uh, it's uncomfortable at the time. I think what we've seen in L&D is a very uncomfortable period. Mm. Um, I don't think it is just through technologies. A lot of the themes that we're exploring today are, um, are you know, we might associate them with technology, but they're not. They're actually ways of thinking about the world, mm. which, is, which are almost um, commonplace as business strategies now, like this sort of customer-centered uh, approach to your, you know, how you um, you manage uh, with it within your particular um, job discipline. The need to be agile and um, I know it sounds all these sad things sound corny because you hear them so much. Mm. Agile in the sense that you are able to, you're not trying to get everything perfect first time. You're trying to constantly improve and enhance mm. what you do, and sometimes throw away that and start again with something else. Um, 
rather than trying to per- per- perfect things. Mm. The, um, the, the, the uh, desire to do things on the basis of firm evidence rather than on hunch. All of these things are absolutely, you know, every business strategy of every client I've worked with in the last five years has included elements of those. Mm. So a lot of the things that make um, L&D more effective are things which are changes which are affecting not they say business, I mean employ, employment all around the world and the way organisations work. I'm not saying that organisations have been necessarily very effective in making these things happen, but they realise that they are desirable things mm. and are working towards them. And that's exactly what we're trying to see in L&D, all of the, exactly the same themes. Um, and I think that uh, it's uncomfortable and disruptive. Not so. It isn't just technology. It is the whole thing about being agile is very disruptive. The thing mm. about being evidence-based as opposed to, you know, our tendency to, you know, use essentially quack medicines, a whole load of psychobabble, mm. uh, you know, which we've been very guilty of in L&D. We're not evidence-based. We're not science-based. We're sort of romantics, mm. you know, um, who are sometimes completely out of kilter with, with current research. Um the, the uh, you know the need to be customer centered when actually we're not sure that we really want to talk to learners because we're not quite sure what they're going to say they might not like what we you know they might not like what we propose mm. all of these things are uncomfortable and they all um, disrupt the way we've worked so in a way it's the whole package the yeah. whole package is changing but it's changing for everybody in every business yeah. it's not just for L and D people and um, that's what work is like. Um, is going to be like in the future but nearly all of those things is for the good none of these things are horrible things which are happening to ruin the way we work they're all things which should mean we're uh, our work is more exciting more effective more uh, empowering and actually delivers better results um, but it doesn't mean we've got to work in different ways no and it's not just about the activities either is it Clive the the Two things that I think seem to be missing broadly in learning and development without um, saying that it's that they're completely uh, missing are um, vision and leadership. So vision to imagine a way of guiding and supporting the people in our organisations mm-hmm. that we are hoping to influence and help, but also leading the organisation to to under, first of all understand our vision, buy into that vision, and then lead them away from those conversations of, well, I prefer classrooms or we don't like e-learning because really it's, it's not about the mechanism in no. the end. It is, yeah. It's about helping people with what the organisation requires yeah. them to do and what they ultimately really want to do, I'm sure, themselves. Well, yeah. Well, the irony, of course, is that they will come to us to try and help the organisation more agile, more evidence-based, yeah. more customer-focused. So... We've got to be doing the same things that we're going to be asked asked to teach. As you say, it's not the it's the me, the medium is not the issue. Mm. It isn't about being online or in a classroom. It's the method. It's what it's what you do in a classroom. You know, we have to reflect that a huge amount of classroom training has been unbelievably ineffective, mm-hmm. and for a lot of people, uh, a horrible experience too. Yeah, you, you know. Um, There've been. I'm sure all of us have had fantastic classroom experience, but but whether it's at school, college, or or, or at work, we've also had nightmarish experiences of you know and people get humiliated in classrooms mm-hmm. and asked to do things which are really uncomfortable or treated very poorly. 
So yes, uh, you know, cl- a classroom is just four walls, mm. which in which good things can happen and bad things can happen. And you know, the wires and the networks and the devices which make up um, the tech world are completely neutral. Mm. You know, you can do terrible things with them, and you can do great things with them. And um, I think that uh, yeah, it's a complete distraction to, to worry about you know to, to think about the medium rather than what you call it the message or the method is what is what you do with it yeah and what I thought there when you said that uh, that within a classroom good things can happen bad things can happen but largely nothing really of any substance is taken away it's that it's that large chunk in the middle mm-hmm. that is probably worse than all of them because as we were talking about earlier significant emotional events whether they're good or bad will be memorable but it's the stuff in the middle where <laughs> well, it's just a lot of it isn't memorable yeah but even if it is memorable and I, and I have been on some really good I mean all of us have attended great presentations mm. great meetings great um, courses where we think wow Blimey, that's really made me think, and mm. that could really change the way I do things. Um, but it, the next step is the hard step. Mm. Well, it's the, it, it is an equally hard step anyway, uh, which is which shows us that the, the design of the experience is a lot more than the providing of input or yeah. even uh, a, a, a great interactive experience at the time. It's how that's translated into into behaviour and performance. Um, that's why the design of, you know, end-to-end experience is not just the highlight event in the middle, mm. is um, such an important thing because, yeah, great classroom um, experiences and poor classroom experiences have, on the whole, both of them led to very little change. Yeah, and that's not acceptable. No, it's not. Uh, but Clive, we're coming to the end. I've got one question uh, left for you, but I must tell you, it's not an easy one. Um, <laughs> So it's highly likely that our listener has an LMS filled with e-learning that they struggle to drive traffic to. I'm saying that because I've been there, most people I speak with are in a similar position. And they stopped long ago believing that it truly affected performance and organisational capability. So what should they do? (laughs) I think um, in an agile world, Mm -hmm. uh, we'd never get in this situation because we would have done a little bit we'd have discovered what was working, what wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't have got upset because something wasn't working. We'd have said, ah, this is data. Yeah, People are telling us they want something slightly different or we need to do something slightly differently to influence them. So we try something else. Um, if we've got an LMS full of content which isn't working, it means, it means that we've continued making the same mistake over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, obviously, Nothing magic is going to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. You do have to start again, really, and yeah. go back to finding out what, um, talking to the business and talking to uh, your employees to find out what really would help them in their jobs and probably find that the stuff that they need is much simpler than you think. Yeah. You probably don't need a hugely expensive uh, um, platform for mm-hmm. it. Um, you... Uh, the platform's got to support the way people learn now, not the way that you would have liked them to have learned historically. Mm-hmm. So obviously the platform is important. But um, I hate saying this to a platform person, but <laughs> the, uh, there's a danger that you focus 
too much energy on the platform and not on the on on what you do with it. Yeah. And um, hopefully, if you've chosen the right platform, it will be flexible, allow you to do lots of different things, and allow you to reshape it if it's not if it's not exactly what you want. Is you know you can leave what you've got on there if you if you have to. But in, the, in everything from now on, mm. you start to create in that agile, customer-centered way. And do simple things. Because often, um, things like we've done today cost almost nothing to do. Yeah. Um, make, make videos, simple videos. Uh, you, you know, to be honest, um, if you can't make a great video with a modern uh, smartphone, then <laughs> you, never, you never will be able to. Um, but, it, you know, obviously, it's not, real, it's, it's not about technology. It's about doing things that, pe- that will genuinely help people mm-hmm. to perform better. And... Um, concentrating on uh, finding out a, you know a lot more about what we know now about um, not just what people prefer and what t- technology can do but we know so much more now about what makes good learning yeah you know um, it is people say this is a lot of this is neuroscience in fact very little of it is probably neuroscience it might have been some things come out that which are useful um, but a lot of it is just uh, there's been a a lot of progress in educational psychology which so we, we know an awful lot now about um, what makes good learning and everything else and it isn't all about let people do anything that they want mm-hmm. um, often it, it's the opposite but it's doing that in a knowledgeable way so coming back to being a really great consultant and designer uh, who's comfortable with using technology mm-hmm. just like if you were um, an architect there's a science to it. There's there's an aesthetic or an art, art to it, a uh, creative element. Um, and a lot of it is hugely practical about y- using technologies and materials and things that are available. It, um, but to be a good architect, you've got to be completely up to date with the changes in science, the changes in uh, you know what the data is telling us mm-hmm. about how people live and how they want to live and. Um, and what's changing in terms of materials and all these sort of things. You've got to be completely open to uh, the fact that what you used to know may not be uh, relevant in the future. So, you know, if you're self-aware enough to know that your platform is full of stuff which isn't being used, mm. then you're self-aware enough to, um, to make the change. Great. I, I like that analogy to, to architects. I think that's, uh, that's hugely valid. So, Clive, um, if people want to follow your work or connect with you, how can they do so? Yeah, I have a blog called Clive on Learning. Mm-hmm. That would be uh, a very simple way. So you can go back to 15 years worth of, um, of, of the, the, these sort of ideas. And uh, I work through a company called skillsjourney.com. And, uh, you know, you can find them easily by Googling them. Wonderful. And we'll put some links in the show notes. Clive, thank you very much. Thank you. Having been in the industry for so long, it's helpful to consider the changes affecting L&D as we assess where we are and where we need to get to, something that Clive clearly spends plenty of time doing himself in pursuit of progress. If you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning, connect on LinkedIn or Facebook, for which you'll find the links in the show notes. Goodbye for now.